1: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist.
2: Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives.
1: Hello, Miss Keegan. Hello, Miss Madigan. We just had like a speed through check in. Just kind of like, how are you? How are (laughs) you? I miss you so much. (laughs) I miss you too, but I will be back next week. Very exciting. Gosh, I've forgotten what that even feels like.
2: Honestly, it feels like it's been closer to a year than like what has it been like a little over a month yeah, or something just like about that. It a feels, month. I mean,
1: a, like a month and a week ish. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, it feels so much longer. I don't know why. I think oh, it's just. I miss you. I miss that face so much. I miss
1: you too. I miss our chats. I know, me too. (laughs) I am ready to be back in the sunshine. Today we had like a beautiful sunny day, but yesterday it was like torrential rain and like the sun didn't come Mm. out until like 5 p.m. And my mood was so bad. And today I was like, gosh, why do I feel so like chipper? It's because it's sunny. It's the sun. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So I'm ready yep, yep, for that yep. Los Angeles sunshine. I really it's like getting hot. I'm ready to go to the beach. Like I'm like, "Oh god, I just mm-hmm. want to like sip a beverage by the beach. Sounds perfect."
2: You're getting you're getting home at a good mm-hmm. time. You're getting home right in the start of that like
1: lovely pool day oh, weather yes, and all I'm that. Yes, I'm ready, honey. Let's yeah. go.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. I am too. Let's mm-hmm. do it. All right. <laughs> well, Today, we are going to be giving you another installment of Feminist Faves, and since it is AAPI Heritage Month, we have decided to highlight a few Asian American Pacific Islander feminists this week. Um, I was nuts, and I actually did like two whole people, essentially, but then the woman that I was originally going to do, I just felt like I didn't have enough... like personal information like it was all just very much like things that she did in her career and I wanted to give it a little bit more time so I actually switched it over like on Tuesday to a new person and I'm really happy with who I chose because she's someone that I knew nothing about and seems pretty awesome. Should we get started? Yeah I'm really excited. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about a woman named Hazel Ying Lee today. Hazel was the first Chinese American woman to fly for the u s
1: military. Oh, how cool. this super, super. I don't badass. even think this person came up in my, you know, pre- preliminary search for someone to do this week. she didn't she didn't for me either. Actually, I got, to her through
2: clicking on multiple historycom articles. And I clicked on one talking about the WASP women, which is what I'm going to be talking about. They were like the first group of women that would fly like fighter planes and stuff for the military. So I clicked on that article. And then within that article, I learned about Hazel and then another woman named Maggie. I always say her. Maggie, so Minnesotan, Maggie G. Um, And she came a little bit after Hazel, but both of these women were Chinese-American women who were incredibly successful in their fields. And so I I kind of, like, stumbled upon her by accident, and she's definitely not super
1: well-known. Oh, super cool. Okay, I can't wait. All right, so Hazel
2: was born in Portland, Oregon, on August 24th, 1912, to first-generation Chinese-American parents. She was one of eight kids, and their parents supported the family with their restaurant in Old Town Chinatown in Portland. And that was that area's um, Chinatown or whatever. I can't imagine raising eight children it says in a lot of the research that I read that you know both parents worked in the restaurant and the mother was in charge of you know taking care of the kids but also running this restaurant as well but it seems like growing up in a restaurant was something that Hazel really took with her for the rest of her life like she really enjoyed cooking and things like that and especially during her time in the military we'll kind of see how you know, having that background of owning a restaurant with her
1: family really helped her out. I always thought that that would be cool. Like if your family either owns a restaurant or, and this sounds kind of like morbid and weird, but I had a friend whose family owned a funeral home. Um, but anything yeah. like where your parents are kind of like, you're always there with them while they're working, while they're running things. Yeah. Um, I think it's such an, it makes for such an interesting dynamic, and that can be really positive or really negative. Um, but it's just so different than like having parents who, like, you know, say goodbye to you in the morning and they're gone for eight hours a day, and then they, you know, come back. At you the actually end of the night. like witness. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you witness the hard work that your parents do and I think that it really teaches a lot of responsibility too. Like they're they're seeing the effort and they're also realizing that they have to probably put some effort in too in order to help keep
1: the family yeah, going, totally. you know? I
2: think I think that's a net positive as long as there's no child labor laws, you know, being thrown in there going that they're going against, you know. Yeah,
1: totally agree.
2: So Hazel was raised in a time where there was a lot of xenophobia, which is another word for anti-Chinese bias. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 would be in effect until the Chinese Exclusion Repeal Act, or the Magnuson Act, in 1943. The year before Hazel was born, Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote of the Chinese race as, quote a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are, with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. I allude to the Chinese race. Th- that End is quote. just,
1: I mean, I know that people still feel that way. It's absolutely not something that we have managed to get rid of entirely or even mostly um, in some cases, but that is that mindset of feeling like any one group of people is so different from any other group of people is I I just, I just feel like most people understand that to be so false. Like people are people are people and who we are at our core Mm -hmm. and what we need is the same, you know, like what a, what a horrifying thing to think and then say out loud.
2: I know you're kind of, you're saying the quiet part out loud. Sir, (laughs) you know, you shouldn't even think it, but you definitely shouldn't be saying it. She also navigated through a lot of sexism, especially because she was a very athletic young girl and she enjoyed doing sports like swimming. She loved to play handball. She loved to play cards. And she even learned to (gasps) Drive as a teenager, (laughs) which I guess at the time was like, you know, unheard of for a, you know, young Chinese American woman. She was also described as being very vibrant and funny. She had a great sense of humor. She graduated from Commerce High School, which is now Cleveland High School, in 1929 and landed one of the only suitable jobs for a young Chinese-American woman at the time, which was to become an elevator operator, and she worked at a swanky department store in downtown Portland. In 1931, Japanese forces invaded Manchuria and began military operations, which expanded into China. The Chinese military was in dire need of pilots and Chinese Americans were encouraged to go to China and fly for their military. And this was also during the time where air shows were really popular during the beginning of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And in Right, we talked about that with a, a few yeah, other with people Bessie Coleman, uh, that we discussed. And,
1: um, yeah, several and Amelia, several Erhard. other people, and the you know Tuskegee Airmen. I mean, this has come up so uh-huh. much because like aviation. Imagine, like we've talked about aviation a we lot have, on the show. But like, I think sometimes I was thinking about this the other day. Like I think sometimes we take it for granted that like. There was a time we couldn't fly like I was actually in an airplane, you know, in the sky thinking this that like what an extraordinary feat if you had told someone, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago that this was possible, that we could defy gravity in this way. It it seems like magic, you know, so I would understand that like once it's it's becoming more commonplace, like people must have been so interested to see it with their own eyes. Yeah.
2: Well, and I think that there's always been this fascination with flight. Like whenever anyone would ask me why I loved figure skating so much, I would always say because it's the closest feeling I could get to flying on a daily basis. It's like the wind in your face, going really fast, jumping into the air, all of that. There's this like excitement about defying gravity in that way. And I can imagine, especially with these air shows, they would do like a lot of tricks and races and it was like super fun and exciting. It really showed that this is like a dangerous, exciting, Amazing thing to do. And I think the idea of flight was something that was so inspiring to so many people. And it seems like, you know, with Hazel, she was able to ride as a passenger on a plane at one of these air shows. And she went with a friend. And I guess afterward, the friend was like, she had to fly. Like, that was it. She was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm obsessed with this. So she began saving the money she made as an elevator operator to pay for flight school. She joined the Chinese Flying Club of Portland at the age of 19 and took lessons from famed aviator Al Greenwood. She experienced some opposition from her parents, especially her mother, who didn't think there would be an opportunity for her daughter in this endeavor. But Hazel always responded by saying she had to fly. Her sister Frances said of her love of flying, "...it was the thought of doing something she loved. She enjoyed the danger and doing something that was new to Chinese girls." She got her pilot's license in 1932, becoming one of the first Chinese American women to do so. Author Judy Young writes of this first group of graduates, although few in number, these first Chinese-American aviators, in their attempt to participate in a daring sport, broke the stereotype of the passive Chinese woman and demonstrated the ability of Chinese-American women to compete in a male-dominated field.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, to be the first of anything, we've talked about trailblazers many times on this show, but... It is both, I'm sure, very exciting and exhilarating, and also very scary to be, to go out into the unknown as, you know, not just a woman, but a Chinese American woman. And having grown up with so much anti Chinese sentiment, especially, must have been extremely daunting, you know?
2: Yeah, I feel like the pressure would be immense. But it also seemed like, just from what I've read of her, she wasn't like a very serious woman like she was very like chatty and funny and lively and it seems like she just kind of had this energy about her at least that just seemed to be not careless but just kind of like carefree yeah like i'm carefree yeah like i feel like she i'm sure understood the pressures and things like that but just the feeling that i get from reading how people have described her and things like that she just seems very like just very positive and easygoing and also just very inspirational like she seemed very grateful for everything that she did and she just wanted to fly I don't think it was about anything else she just wanted to learn you know absolutely so it was during this time that she would meet her husband he went by Clifford but his name was Louis Yim Kin while in Portland Clifford was also a Chinese-American pilot and was born in Seattle, Washington in 1914, and his nickname in the military was Long Leg Louie, so he must have had long (laughs) legs. They were married on October 9th, 1943. She wrote in a telegram to another pilot on that day, Not tied today. Cavu for Cliff and me. CAVU was an acronym for ceiling invisibility unlimited. Ceiling isn't that and cute? visibility
1: unlimited.
2: <laughs> yeah, so like she and Cliff like they're visit everything is unlimited. They're they're flying off into Aww, the sky together. I was sweet. like isn't that adorable?
0: Yeah,
2: that's so cute. <laughs> So the two went to China together to support the war effort, but while Clifford was off becoming deputy commander of his own squadron and fighting in combat, Hazel was delegated to a desk job because she was a woman. <laughs> the couple wouldn't see each other for about six months after their wedding, and Hazel was often very worried, being in the dark, about whether her husband was dead, alive, or captured. There was no communication between them, and it sounds like a very stressful stressful time for them to be apart but also because hazel just seemed like she was very unhappy working just this menial job when that's not what she went right, to china so it's for like what she do went you to fly have
1: then in your life if like you're yeah. alone you're not with like the person that you want to be with and also you have no communication to them which in this day and age where we have like instant communication all the time what a weird thing uh, and especially in time of such
2: uh-huh, danger, you don't know isolating. if he's alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then you're also working a job that he doesn't fill you with any amount of like passion or fulfillment, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, she ended up getting so frustrated that she relocated to an area called Canton, which is not in Ohio. It is a place in China. Had to make sure that she wasn't flying back to the U.S. Um, And she started working for a private airline there for the next few years so that she could continue to fly. She was one of a very small number of female pilots in China at the time. In 1937, the Japanese forces invaded China, and Hazel was right in the middle of it all, being in Canton. So she literally was right in the middle of one of these very major battles, and she still decided to remain in the country despite the war and survived while hundreds of civilians were killed in Japanese air attacks. She and the family she had with her in China fled to Hong Kong as refugees. During this time, her friends recall Hazel's calm demeanor as bombs fell around them, and she led them to shelter, helping them survive as well. So she was an incredibly brave person and really always seems to look danger right in the face and have a solution to get out of it. Right, I mean, it seems
1: like it's maybe part of that carefree nature that she just kind of jumps in. Um, You know, just jumps in with two feet, maybe without always assessing the situation you know she's not overthinking it she's just like what do I need to do what needs to get done how can I help well
2: it's funny because we were just I was telling Keegan a story before we started um recording about how you know I had kind of a scary moment at work and my instinct was flight like get the fuck out of there and that's usually my My instinct is to just get the fuck out. It's not to fight. It sounds like her instinct was to Mm -hmm. fight. Like she was just like, no, I'm going to stay, figure this out, fight through it, protect people. She was just stupidly brave. You know what I mean? She tried once again to aid the Chinese Air Force as a pilot, but was once again turned away. So she moved back to the United States and settled in New York, where she got a job as a buyer of war materials for China. On December 7th, 1941, the Japanese made a surprise military strike on the island of Pearl Harbor, officially bringing the United States into World War II. As the war claimed more and more lives of American pilots, it became clear that women would have to become part of the fight. With the ambivalent support of the U.S. Air Force Commander Henry Hap Arnold, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, was created in 1943. This was in big part thanks to a woman by the name of Jacqueline Jackie Cochran, who would become the woman in charge of the WASPs. She is a total badass pioneer in women's aviation racing, and she was also a friend of Amelia Earhart. She sounds like a very Mm -hmm. cool woman. So Jackie chose 36 of the best female pilots in America for her program, and Hazel was selected as one of them. And Hazel was one of two Chinese women selected for this program, so she was definitely uh, outnumbered. She was different than most of the rest of the pilots that were accepted into this group. All members of WASP reported to Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas for a grueling six-month training, which Hazel almost didn't survive. One day, she was riding as a passenger to another pilot who made an unexpected loop and flung an unbuckled Hazel out of the plane. Oh, my God.
1: You know, I feel like we had this conversation a lot with Bessie Coleman because, of course, she was a trick Uh pilot. Um, but uh-huh. I think that can't be overstated either how because aviation was relatively new, how easily something could go wrong <laughs> um, and how yeah. dangerous it yeah. really was.
2: Oh, there's multiple. Yeah, it's insane. So luckily, she was able to pull her parachute in time to have like a safe landing on the field. And she landed so far away that she ended up having to walk all the way back with her parachute dragging behind her. Like I'm just picturing that image of like she was five foot three and like super tiny. I'm just picturing her like coming out of the forest with this like huge parachute behind her. Like I'm here, guys. Well, you gotta Sorry. Do, what you gotta do?
1: I guess you know.
2: I know. It's just. Oh, God. Sounds horrible. So, although the women of WASP were under military command, being women, they were only classified as civilians and were paid through the civilian service. They were also not allowed to see combat, receive military benefits, or be buried in a military yeah, funeral. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. If
1: they're paying them as civilians and they're labeling them as civilians, they're doing military grade work while not getting the government benefits that they would be afforded if they were actually yep. in the military which is real messed up i mean it is one of the only very messed up. good things about being in the military or being you know part of most it's government agencies b- is the benefits
2: well and it's a a reason that a lot of people join i babysat a girl growing up who knew that her family wouldn't be able to afford college mm-hmm. for yep. all three daughters to go so she joined the marines and fought for a while and then used those benefits to get herself to college why a lot of you know there's join- Yeah, 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 yeah. They also had to pay for their own food and lodging and went without flight suits for a while as the men's uniforms couldn't fit all of the women. As I just said, Hazel was like this slender 5'3 woman and they didn't have flight suits that would fit these women. They were also sent on the most undesirable missions like winter trips in open cockpit airplanes, which would fucking suck. (laughs) No, thank you. Right? No, thanks. I'm good. It wasn't until the Air Transportation Command that commanding officers began giving the women flight assignments. The Air Transportation Command's two main missions were to 1 deliver supplies and equipment overseas, and to ferry aircraft from manufacturing plants in the U.S. to where they were needed for training or combat use, and sometimes directly to enemy lines. So what they were doing was really dangerous. While they weren't actually in the front lines fighting, they were doing a lot of delivering of these aircraft and other supplies to very dangerous areas and in very dangerous conditions as well. They would also test new planes. They had to train male pilots, yuck, and flew damaged planes back to base for repair. I'm so sorry, all stuff I would get
1: <sighs> so frustrated. I mean, I, right? everyone who has like worked a job, well, I, I guess I can't say everyone, but like for me, I know that that happened to me where you have to train your superior Basically, yep. like, so you know that yep. you're like you have all of the knowledge, and you're having to train someone who is going to be paid more than you and have a higher rank yep. than you, and and do the job that you want. Yeah, that is so frustrating, uh, unbelievably
2: frustrating. That's why I was just like, "Fuck you" for making them train the dudes. That sucks. Yeah. In total, thirty-eight of the women who were a part of WASP died in service. This was incredibly dangerous work that they were doing. When Hazel graduated from her six months of training, she was assigned to the 3rd Ferrying Group in Romulus, Michigan. Their assignment was critical to the war effort as they were often flying large numbers of aircraft to places like Europe and Pacific war fronts. Her sister described Hazel's time in Romulus as a, quote, seven-day work week with little time off. By this time, Hazel was in her 30s, older than some of the other female pilots, and that made her like sort of a leader to them. Fellow pilots remembered her being the one who said, I'll take and deliver anything. They also describe her as being calm and fearless, especially in high stress situations, but also fast talking and hilarious, which I love. <laughs> mm-hmm. On one emergency landing in Kansas, a farmer mistook her for a Japanese enemy and came at her with a pitchfork, chasing her around her plane as he was shouting to his neighbors that the Japanese had invaded Kansas. Oh, geez. So, while it's, it's kind of a funny image, this was absolutely terrifying. She was by herself she had to make an emergency landing and she's trying to convince this man chasing after her with a pitchfork that she is a chinese american woman fighting for the u.s military and this guy is just seeing an asian woman assuming she's japanese and freaking the fuck out (laughs)
1: yeah i can't imagine you know like those are the hurdles that you're dealing with as not only a minority but as an asian american minority during world war ii like that is
2: uh, it was scary Yeah, it was definitely tough. So somehow she was able to convey all of this to the farmer. Like, look, this is this is who I really am. And she, quote, demanded him to stop. I read that in multiple (laughs) points of research. I'm like, damn, she demanded him.
1: Well, she Um, sounds like a
2: pretty commanding woman. Right. She's tiny, but she's mighty. My goodness. Apparently later that night when recounting the incident to her other like wasp friends, Hazel had everybody in hysterics. So it sounds like she had a very playful nature about her, especially when it comes to like really difficult experiences in her life. She was like, I have to laugh about it. Yeah, I imagine
1: you would have to.
2: Yeah. She also was very sweet with her fellow pilots. She would teach them what their names or nicknames were in Chinese characters, and then she would write it in lipstick on the tails of their planes for them. Oh, that's cute. Isn't it? She would also go to like any Chinese restaurant in whatever city they were in. She would like look at the menu and then go back to the chef and be like, I'm making this. And she would like bring her like white pilot friends along and like cook Chinese food for them. And they would all eat together and things like that. Fellow WASP Sylvia Doms Clayton recalled, Hazel provided me with an opportunity to learn about a different culture at a time when I did not know anything else. She expanded my world and my outlook on life. Though a lot of women were very encouraging of all of this, it sounds like Hazel was incredibly popular and had a lot of friends. There was still some racism going on. I'm sure not everybody was super excited to be um, working with someone like Hazel because of the sentiments at the time. There were some letters found in archives, and one of the letters, a fellow pilot, refers to Hazel as, quote, the little Chinese girl. So, not exactly very humanizing to her.
1: No. I mean, but that's what happens whenever you're not only a minority, but also kind the of like one. a. Yeah, the only one, a, a token minority, you yep. know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
2: In September 1944, she was sent to Pursuit School at Brownsville, Texas, for more intensive training. And Pursuit planes are faster, higher-powered fighter planes. It's, like, very, very difficult. Only 134 women were chosen to learn how to fly Pursuit planes, and this was, like, very, very prestigious. You had to be a very, very good aviator. And Hazel and the others were the first women ever to pilot fighter aircraft for the U.S. military. Two months later, in November of 1944, she was ordered to go to Bell Aircraft Factory in Niagara Falls, New York. She was told to fly a fighter plane from there to Great Falls, Montana, which was a major hub for pursuit pilots, delivering over 5,000 planes to supply the Soviet allies fighting the Nazis. From Great Falls, a male pilot would take the plane the rest of the way to the Soviets. When she got to Fargo, North Dakota, weather was bad, so she landed and stayed there until the morning of November 23rd once the weather had cleared up. She was then cleared to land in Great Falls around 2 o'clock that afternoon, but due to a confusion on the part of the control tower, too many planes were to arrive at the same time. This led to Hazel's plane colliding with another plane. Oh, jeez. Her aircraft burst into flames, and Hazel was pulled from the burning wreckage with her flight jacket still ablaze. She passed away from severe burns two days later on November 25, 1944. According to someone that was there, she was conscious the whole time and she never complained. The doctor had said they had never seen someone so brave. Just 3 days after her family learned of Hazel's passing, they received a telegram that her brother Victor, who was serving in the US Tank Corps, had been killed in combat in France. Oh wow. The family per- I know That's so I know so much all at once. It's too much. The family prepared for two burials and chose a burial site in Portland Cemetery. However, the cemetery refused to allow the family to bury Hazel and Victor in the chosen spot, citing the cemetery policy that did not allow Asian people to be buried in the, quote, white section. After a very long battle, the Lee family finally prevailed, and Hazel was buried in a non-military funeral and buried alongside her brother. As I mentioned earlier, 38 WASP pilots died while in service during World War II. And Hazel was the 38th last pilot to die during the program. Oh my gosh, that is so tragic. It is very tragic. The program was actually disbanded shortly after that on December 20th, 1944, in anticipation for the end of the war. And after that, these women that were fighting in the war went back and faded into housewifery and child rearing defining the role for women
1: in the 1950s you yeah, know
2: it's you know, kind of
1: sad I had no idea that this even existed and yeah. I can't imagine you know it feels like one of those things that you find out about your grandma and you're like what uh-huh. wait what
2: <laughs> yeah you know,
1: because this isn't something that you is picture them taught. as being
2: like housewives and like meek you know what I mean you don't picture your grandmother as being like someone super badass and they were all just kind of expecting to go back to that very meek persona when the war was over and it took so long for them to get any sort of recognition they fought for more than 30 years after the war to get uh to secure military status for female pilots in march 1977 their efforts were finally recognized after the u.s congressional approval of public law 95-202 She and the other pilots, living or dead, received the Congressional Gold Medal in 2010. In 2004, Hazel was indicted into Oregon's Aviation Hall of Honor. And finally, I was unable to watch it, but it's on my list. In 2010, PBS released a documentary about Hazel entitled, A Brief Flight, Hazel Ying Lee
1: and the Women Who Flew Pursuit. The end. Wow, that is incredible. That is absolutely not something that I had ever heard of or was even slightly aware of. So I am
2: so thankful that I clicked enough to find out about the wasps yes. because it was so fascinating and I highly recommend that everybody go look up Maggie G as well. It's spelled G-E-E because she was another one. She came a little bit later, but she is another pilot where their stories are so similar. She survived (laughs) for much longer. I believe that Maggie passed away in like 2017 or something like that. But um, it's another really wonderful story of another, you know, Chinese American woman just pioneering in aviation. Wow.
1: That's well, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention because I would love to learn more about her specifically and that group as a whole. So amazing.
2: You are so welcome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you want to take a quick break and then we'll come back and I'll tell you who I've got for our Feminist Fade <gasps> this week?
0: Let's do it. Okay. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working.
2: Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're back. Okay, so I was, you know, Googling, Googling, Googling. And then Good old Goog. this person popped up, and I wonder if it's who you were going to do. Um, and I was like, why have I never thought of doing Margaret Cho before.
2: <laughs> it wasn't. But I love that you thought of Margaret Cho.
1: Yeah, because I mean, here's a person who I'll be honest, like her stand up sets aren't my favorite style of comedy to watch. However, this is someone who was really trailblazing and groundbreaking in comedy um, yeah. and is also a very outspoken open Feminist. Like, she's yes. not one of those people who has ever shied away from that term. Um, no. At all. She doesn't
2: shy away from anything. Margaret Cho is like outrageous in the best way. <laughs>
1: right. And that's what makes her kind of cool. So let's yeah. dive in. So, Margaret Cho was born on December 5th in San Francisco. And I had to look this up because I was. That's like, Penny's birthday. Oh, is it really? So, Penny yeah. and Margaret are both Sagittariuses, which yeah, I she's was very like, fiery. I was like, Margaret Cho is like, of course, she's a Sagittarius. I'm like, yes, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> that feels right to me. So she grew up in a Christian household, a fairly religious household. I don't think it was like a strict religion, but her grandfather was a Christian minister. So that definitely had an effect on her childhood. Um, Certainly. Yeah. Her neighborhood in Ocean Beach was really racially diverse and she would later describe it. And I'm going to use her words. So I'll say later on, you know, like you said, she doesn't shy away from anything. She has no filter, really. But even given all of that, she has grown and changed a lot of her language. And so... uh, This is not how I would put this, but I'm going to directly quote her. But she describes her community as a community of old hippies, ex-druggies, burnouts from the 1960s, drag queens, Chinese people and Koreans. To say it was a melting pot, that's the least of it. It was a really confusing, enlightening, wonderful time.
2: (laughs) Honestly, it seems like a really awesome place to grow up. Yeah, it's like a, a... Maybe not the best wording, like you said, but I understand the sentiment. Yeah. And... It sounds like it would definitely, you know, even being the granddaughter of a, of a, you know, Christian minister, I can see growing up in an area like that where you're in such a melting pot, you can't help but become like cultured
1: in some way. You know, yeah, totally. You're exposed to so many different things and different types of people, and it really opens up your worldview.
2: And you're growing up with kids that are different than you, you know, I just think that that's the best way to grow up when you're always
1: seeing differences. You're not just growing up with people that are like you. Totally. And her parents also owned a bookstore. So she was constantly exposed to new ideas and literature. And her father also wrote joke books that were published in Korea. So comedy. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Comedy kind of ran in her genes. So I'm going to give a trigger for this entire next Next um, paragraph. So trigger warning for this entire next paragraph, because it is rough. Margaret's childhood was riddled with trauma. Um, She was teased and bullied relentlessly in school, often for her weight. And this is something that would be a theme that carries on throughout, I mean, really her whole life up until this point. Later in life, she would describe in interviews how she began to get molested by a family friend starting at the age of five Mm -hmm. and not long after was raped by an uncle. And the assaults continued for years. Like, really, from the time (sighs) she was five until she was a teenager, she was being regularly assaulted and raped. Oh, my goodness. Um,
2: I mean, I just... I've been reading a few memoirs lately, and there's... Experiences that are similar to this that I've been reading about and just imagining that secret that she's holding and thinking, like, I can't tell people because what if they don't believe me? Or, you know what I mean? Like, obviously there was turmoil going on because she wasn't able to... Reach out to somebody and get the support she needed for the abuse to end right away. And that just makes me so sad. Right. To think I mean, of this little girl who knows something bad is happening to her, but feels like she can't say anything. Like it, that just breaks my heart.
1: Right. And I don't know what was going on at home, why she felt like she couldn't speak up at home. But at some right. point, I think when she was in her like middle school years, she finally spoke up to someone at school. Um, well, I
2: think when you're really young, you don't even have that language yet. You don't understand what sex is or what people are doing is wrong. You just know it feels bad. You know what I mean? But I think a lot of kids don't have the language yet to tell somebody what's happening to them. So it probably would take until you're older to be able to be like, now I know what was happening to me.
1: I know what words to use and I can go to somebody I trust. Well, you know. Unfortunately, I don't know who she went to at school. It doesn't seem like she went to a teacher. Like maybe she told another student. Maybe like
2: a nurse. Um, I don't think so.
1: I don't think it was an authority figure. If it was an authority figure, they mishandled this in the worst way. Because what happened was... Um, She told somebody at school and then word got around to the other students and instead of being met with compassion, they used it as another means to bully her Um, and she recalls that they would tell her that she was and again, I'm going to use her words here. So please know that these aren't words that I would use. And again, trigger warning here. But she said that they would tell her that she was so fat that only a crazy person would have sex with her. So that's the reception she got when she revealed to um, the people in her life or anyone in her life. That is
2: absolutely disgusting on so many levels. And The fact that anyone would attribute... Rape or molestation to sex in general yep. is mm-hmm. fucked up. Go fuck off. Don't say that. Secondly, to make it seem like she should be so lucky to be abused by somebody is absolutely sickening. Right. And I'm sure so unbelievably damaging to her psyche. Absolutely. That is so fucked up. Yeah,
1: completely delegitimized her entire experience as well, which is just um, tragic. It's just tragic. So, this went on throughout middle school and high school, and understandably, I mean, like, she's being bullied relentlessly at school, she's being um, sexually assaulted at home, and... Mm. She doesn't feel like she can trust anyone. She doesn't feel like she can talk to anyone. So she began to do everything in her power to avoid going to school and she would often skip class. So her grades began to suffer to such a degree that she was eventually expelled from Lowell High School where she had attended in the 10th grade.
2: Wow. And I'm sure that didn't make her home life any easier either.
1: No, I'm sure it didn't. So after her expulsion she began to express an interest in the arts and performance and she auditioned and was accepted into the San Francisco School of the Arts, a San Francisco Public High School for the Arts. While there she became active in the school's improv group alongside actors Aisha Tyler and Sam Rockwell. So she was wow. she went to high school with them, which is kind of wild.
2: Why do all these famous people always go to high school together? I don't
1: know. Like, they come in groups. I have no idea. They do.
2: Uh, like, Kirsten Dunst and Rami Malek went to high mm-hmm. school together. I'm trying to think of some and other Rachel ones. And Rachel like Bilson, I think,
1: was also in their school with them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then um, Max... Technically, I think she was either a grade above or below him, but technically went to school with Blake Lively, but she was never really there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was just like part of his school or whatever. She was like, I was in school with Blake Lively. I saw her like once in the hall. Wait, did you go to our school when Shaq went? Yeah. I Have I never told this story that Shaq wanted me in his film? my classmate was in his film but I just remember walking by him and being like holy shit you could eat me (laughs) like yeah no he
1: asked you to be in his film yeah there's a whole story there uh, okay well
2: well, I know we're in tight time today so we'll have to do a little bonus where you can tell your
1: Shaq story I mean long story short I could have been Shaq's basketball wife but we'll talk about that another day.
2: cliffhanger I know, cliffhanger I know. well his his real girlfriend and like posse would follow him around school like he was alone in class or whatever so i remember seeing like his whoever his girlfriend or wife was mm-hmm. at the
1: time or whatever but yeah and she oh my god super crazy tiny too um so but, tiny all right <laughs> so after graduating back to business high school yeah back to business after graduating the san francisco school of the arts She attended San Francisco State University studying drama, but she never finished. So she started doing stand-up comedy regularly. That's what she really wanted to do. She didn't really have a lot of interest in going to school. She wanted to act and do stand-up. So she started doing stand-up at the club that was connected to her parents' bookstore or like adjacent to it. And became popular in the club scene, slowly making her way up to small television roles. In 1992, she appeared on the unsuccessful Golden Girls spinoff, The Golden Palace, in a small role, which is not a show that I even knew existed.
2: It's on Hulu now. is it really? Yes, people have been asking, us Golden Girls fans have been asking for it for quite some time. There's, I think, a couple seasons or maybe just one. I don't remember. Max and I started watching it because he is now a big Golden Girls fan. And it's fun. It's not as good, but it's a good time. They they run a hotel together. Well, a thing. Well, look out for Margaret Cho because... She, she is in it. Actually, yeah. Don Cheadle is in it, too. Like, there's actually a lot of really good actors in the spinoff, strangely. But, yeah, I remember Margaret Cho being in it. It's great. You yeah, should watch yeah. it. Yeah,
1: and that was her first real, like, television role. And she... Um, really kind of gushes about Rue McClanahan. McClanahan? Wow. Um, Who really helped her a lot with like her lines and made her feel very like welcome and comfortable on set because what a daunting thing, you know?
2: Yeah, well, and Rue was also kind of the glue between Betty White and Bea Arthur as Mm -hmm. well because they didn't like each other. It sounds like Rue McClanahan in general was just like the coolest Woman, Yeah, I'd love to know more about her that too. vibe
1: that like brings people together. And it sounds like she, she seemed had
2: motherly, yeah.
1: motherly, caring, you know. Yeah, totally. So she also secured a coveted spot as the opening act for Jerry Seinfeld sometime in this time. I think that the improv scene in San Francisco was really booming at this time and the stand up comedy scene. So at about this time, she was featured on a Bob Hope special and was also a frequent visitor to the Arsenio Hall show. So doors really opened for her in a way like she had this kind of like charisma. Again, she's one of those people who jumps in with both feet. And I think that that was really appealing to people at this time. Yeah. So Margaret's stand-up was often centered around her experiences as a Korean-American woman. And it distinguished her from, you know, the other people on the stand-up comedy landscape at this time that was dominated. Especially,
2: prim- especially the fact that I'm sure I just cut you off because you good. were going to say they're all white men. <laughs> you exactly. know what I mean? Yeah, it was
1: it was dominated predominantly by male white performers at this time. So this drew the attention of ABC, who developed and aired a sitcom based on her stand-up routine. And the show was titled All-American Girl. And it was the first network sitcom of its era to feature an Asian-American family and predominantly East Asian cast. So it was a huge Mm -hmm. deal. You know, it was groundbreaking in so many ways. So, though the show was given a desirable time slot, it was given a time slot Wednesday nights ahead of Roseanne and Ellen. So, they were out the gate. Like, they gave this show... They were, they wanted this show to be a big success, right? Um, right. But despite that, there were issues right from the start. So, they wanted the show to be this big success. They gave it this desirable time slot, but then they didn't give Margaret Cho or any of the other actual, like, Asian actors... Any creative license to do anything, right? So right. It, it would. The fall writers' flat. room,
2: I'm, I'm sure, was still very white. Yeah,
1: incredibly white. And Margaret would later say that the show's producers criticized her appearance, specifically her round face, so much that she starved herself for several weeks prior to filming the show's pilot, which ultimately resulted in kidney failure for her.
2: Yeah. Um, She has been open about the fact that she struggled with disordered eating mm -hmm. and bad body image and body dysmorphia throughout her life. Yeah. Uh, another reason I'm just so thankful to her. She just is so great at breaking that stigma down a little
1: bit and yeah. being so open about her struggles. She is not shy to talk about... Anything that she has struggled with. And I think having that open dialogue and being so open about like her, you know, child sexual abuse, trauma and her disordered eating, body image issues, drug addiction, addiction, as we'll get into um, all of that stuff. I think just one well, all of open that book, goes
2: together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's seeing how childhood trauma and the things that we experience when we're young can sometimes make living
1: life that much more difficult when it's unresolved and mm-hmm. not taken care of. You yeah, know? yeah, definitely. Uh, she would also say that despite having a cast of Asian actors, they were not permitted to take the lead in terms of telling their own stories and the show suffered criticism from within the East Asian community in the United States over its perception of stereotyping because it was yeah. being led by a group of predominantly white men in the room, um, producers and They don't know. They're trying to cater to white audiences, but they want Uh Asian viewing audiences. And so they're relying on so many stereotypes that they think will resonate with white audiences. But it falls flat with them and it just pisses off the Asian community in the United States.
2: Which is so unfortunate in having a show that could have been so groundbreaking and was so groundbreaking because it was the first of its kind. What a shame it is to have it being so mishandled that it had to be unsuccessful.
1: You know what I mean? When it could have been something great. Absolutely. Um, Producers told Margaret at different times during production, both that she was too Asian and that she was not Asian enough. At one point during the course of the show, they even hired a coach to teach her how to be more Asian. (gasps) No! Yeah, she's like, I'm literally Asian. Like, I am Korean. I, I yeah. grew up in a Korean what, household. How more do
2: you want me to be? You uh-huh. know? <laughs>
1: exactly. All-American Girl made it one season before being canceled due to poor ratings. It would be another 20 years before ABC aired another sitcom starring an Asian-American family, which was Fresh Off the Boat, which ran from... I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, at 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. And she would later say of the series, quote... We were so limited by having this idea of having to be an autobiographical narrative that it was authentic. And I was caught up in that, too. Like, how can we actually be authentic as if we couldn't be trusted to tell our own story? That was the wrong attitude. But I am proud of my achievements. As far as I could go, it was really important. So what she's saying there is just like. They were trying so hard to manufacture authenticity that yeah. it ended up not being authentic at all. Because if they had just trusted them to tell the story, to tell their own stories as Asian-American people in the United States and what's that, that's like for them as families, it would uh-huh. have been so much better. And I think she wishes she had pushed for that.
2: All right, Netflix, you know what to do. Pick mm-hmm. it
1: up. Right. After the show ended, Margaret spiraled into drug and alcohol addiction, depression, and continued to struggle with disordered eating and body image issues. And she's been very open. Um, She's actually made a lot of jokes in her stand-up about her, you know, suicide attempts that she had during this time period. But it was you know, she uses comedy to get herself through a lot of things, and she's been very open about her need to connect her trauma to comedy. Uh, I,
2: and I think that that's true for a lot of people. Like, yeah. I think that it's easy to to hear jokes about that and think that you're making light of something, but I think to a lot of people, comedy is their way of translating real feelings to you through a more palatable medium. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, just absolutely. because she's making a quote unquote joke doesn't mean it's like funny necessarily the situation isn't funny but sometimes that's the most palatable way for someone to to heal and to share is through comedy. Because if we can't laugh at ourselves, what are we doing? Yeah, Yeah.
1: I mean, it doesn't mean that this time in her life wasn't any more difficult or traumatic for her. Because it was. I mean, this is really the start of her drug and alcohol addiction. Because she'd had all this trauma already. She'd already struggled with disordered eating. She'd already kind of gotten hooked on, you know, um, basically weight loss Drugs and things like that. But and these th- things spiral. It's right. so
2: easy yeah. to have, you know, one bad coping mechanism turn into another. You just keep right. trying and trying right. until you, you know,
1: hoping that one of those things
2: is going to fill that void to make you feel better.
1: Yes, and this experience that she had with this show, you know, as groundbreaking as it was, um, it was so negative that it really plunged her into this depression that she... I don't even think to this day has fully recovered from, you know? Right. So despite all of this, though, and everything that was going on, she did release her first comedy album, Drunk With Power, a year later in 1996 and continued to book work not only as a stand-up, but also in films such as the 1997 thriller Face Off with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. So, I mean, she's mm, booking big things. Like, she is coming up like at record speed, really. Yeah. In 1999, she wrote about her struggles with all-American girl in her first one-woman show, I'm the one that I want. That year it won New York Magazine's Performance of the Year award and was named one of the great performances of the year by Entertainment Weekly. At the same Fabulous. time, yeah, at the same time, she wrote and published an autobiographical book with the same title and the show itself was filmed and released As a concert film in 2000. The show dealt with her past trauma, with addiction issues, with issues of disordered eating and body image. Um, She was also really candid about the racism that she had experienced while trying to break into the industry. You know, that it was, you know, not just the stuff that happened on the set of All American Girl, but everything as trying to break into this industry as a non white person. In both her stand-up sets and her offstage interviews, Margaret was open and honest about things like sex and her sexual identity. She came out as bisexual before... You know, we talk a lot about um, biphobia and a lot of the stigma surrounding bisexuality, and that was very prevalent in the 90s. And Oh my gosh, yeah. She was very open about her sexual identity, even at that time, and she wasn't afraid to discuss politics in her sets either. She openly identified in the 90s, again, when there was a lot of stigma, openly identified as a feminist, and openly Mm -hmm. advocated for the LGBTQ community, even pretty early on, when she was discussing her sexuality in 2018 to the Huffington Post, she said, I don't know if using bisexual is right because that indicates that there are only two genders, and I don't believe that. I've been with people all across the spectrum of gender and who have all kinds of different expressions of gender, so it's hard to say. Maybe pansexual is technically the more correct term, but I like bisexual because it's kind of 70s.
2: <laughs> Honestly, I it sounds so similar to like how I talk about myself too because like I don't really like the idea of just being bisexual because to me that is very limiting still when it comes to gender and things like that but I don't know why pansexual doesn't sound as sexy I don't know why Maybe yeah. that's a me thing. It's, it is, Bisexual just sounds
1: sexier. <laughs> yeah, it is funny like that because it's just like, yeah, I think that she, she is pansexual. You know, she's been pretty open and that is what that yeah. sounds like to me. Um, it's very much that like David Rose... I like the wine, not the label sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And totally, that's, totally. That's what it feels like with her. And even though I don't go into her marriage, but she did end up getting married in the early 2000s and remained married until 2015. Um, but she was also very open about the fact that her marriage was an open marriage. I mean, uh-huh. they, and they, they talked about that, I think, at a time when that wasn't something that a lot of people were discussing. Like, and well, the- and I just think
2: all of this is probably something that was so shocking to so many people. And I'm saying this just because I know of the stereotype of how a Asian-American woman should quote-unquote, should behave or be. We have this you know, very long-standing idea of them being small and meek or quieter and not being as loud and vulgar and out there. And here we have Margaret Cho, who is so unafraid of speaking her mind and speaking out about her sexuality and all these other things where I don't think that a lot of people expected that from someone of her culture at the time when they were always so diminished into being... Smaller, and I'm not trying to speak for everybody here, but just in the research that we've that we've done, it seems like you know what was the episode that where we spoke about, um, uh, shit, what was fetishization
1: it? of of Asian American women? I mean, we've spoken on about this, yeah, um, several. Exactly, times. I was
2: trying to think of specific examples, but yeah, I I feel like everything that she speaks up for is so daring um, especially speaking out about being in an open marriage in like the early 2000s and things like that and her sexuality was probably so unbelievably shocking to people at the time and probably either really helped boost her popularity with a lot of people but it was also probably really damaging to her popularity in a lot of ways too in the industry. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean I think she was ahead of her time in many ways and you know there's so much about Margaret Cho and so I didn't go into everything in detail with her. Um, but a lot of Asian American feminists have written about how Margaret chose sex positivity um, was something that they had not seen a lot of a- other Asian American women Doing in public, like being vocally sex positive, it had a real impact and continues to have an impact because not only was she talking about all of this stuff, she also, you know, had a burlesque show at one point. She, I was just gonna say, she's kind of vulgar in a great way. You know, she's not she's not
2: timid about her sexuality. Yeah, she had sex toys
1: that she, you know, helped to fund (laughs) a, a company for. Like, she has been very open about all of that stuff. And as an Asian American woman specifically, she's spoken about how that was not done. You know, she has a yeah. lot of tattoos and she talks about in one of her stand-up sets, going to a Korean bathhouse, which we've done together, you know, where you yeah. are completely nude and you're, she's around all of these, you know, Korean American older women or Korean older women. And she's got tattoos and like that's <gasps> scandalous and, and things yep. like that. So it is, it's a big deal. It's a big deal it would be a big deal no matter what because of who she is, but it's a bigger deal because of the culture she comes from. And that's just right. the truth. Yeah. Um, okay. So when San Francisco mayor, who is now California state governor, Gavin Newsom directed that San Francisco's city hall issue marriage licenses to same sex couples in San Francisco. And this was in 2004, which this was eventually reversed by this state Supreme court. Margaret yeah. started Love is Love is Love and it's a website promoting the legalization of gay marriage in the United States. She was also a vocal opponent to former president George W. Bush and mm-hmm. the US's and the US's involvement in Iraq. In 2004 She was performing at a corporate event in a hotel when after 10 minutes her microphone was cut off and a band was instructed to begin playing. And she says that this was because the manager of the hotel was offended by her anti-Bush comments. And Mm -hmm. that the check that she was issued, which was supposed to be, um, you know, she was when she got paid, she had said that the check was supposed to go directly to a nonprofit organization that was a defense fund for the West Memphis Three. And awesome. And this check initially bounced and she had to (gasps) like fight it in order for it to be honored. In July of 2004, during the Democratic National Convention, uh, she was disinvited to speak because they were afraid that, you know, she's unpredictable in that she's just so ballsy that they're like, she might say something that she shouldn't be, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. In 2008, she officially gave her support to Barack Obama for the nomination of the Democratic ticket and then came under fire after Republican candidate John McCain announced his running mate, Sarah Palin, and Cho said of her, I think Palin is the worst thing to happen to America since Ah! (laughs) 9-11. And conservatives went bananas, of course. Of course they did. Unlike some others, you know, as I've said earlier, Margaret never shied away from the term feminist and wrote an entire blog post discussing her personal feminism on her website in 2012. And it reads in part. And I would you know recommend everyone go read the whole thing. It's not very long, but I just took some selected parts here. Quote, Why am I a feminist? I just am, and I haven't really questioned it. There are always women who like to say they are not feminists. Famous, successful, courageous, and powerful women at that. But then those women who say that they have made their voices heard across the globe over time, loudly and clearly, and that probably couldn't have happened without a great deal of help from feminism, and I guess technology. All I know is that as a woman in my work and in my life, I have been treated as if my achievements were less valuable because they were born from my body. I only know this because I have worked closely, been intimate with, risen and fallen with men of all kinds. I have done the same with women of all kinds. And my assessment of all the humanity I have experienced... Women get the short end of it. So therefore, my feminism, it's kind of necessary. I don't want to feel like I am less than anyone. And so I have to label myself in order to be ready for the fight. I don't want young girls to fear the word feminism because they will desperately need it out in the world. And to fear what will help you, Make you stronger, better, happier. It makes no sense. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, me too. And it's just, it just, she's like, duh, of, of course I'm a feminist. Feminism has helped me out in the world and it would help you too. And she speaks also yeah. of her feminism as it relates to her identity as a Korean American woman. And she told Miss Magazine, you know, um, that for all women in my family when I was growing up in Korean culture you never say your name you only say who your son is and that's your name somewhere you lose your name and then Mm. you're only identified by where your place is in the family it's not subtle but that misogyny is so ingrained in the language and that's why it's so radical that she is such an outspoken feminist who speaks up for herself and what she needs so much um, in her culture you know And she's been an example to other people that they can do that as well. and They can be difficult, even when in the media, a lot of especially East Asian women are depicted as quiet and subservient, you know. In recent years, she's become kind of this elder for Asian Americans in the entertainment industry. In 2014, when Eddie Huang's memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, was turned into a network sitcom, Uh, She consulted on the show and she said, quote, I'm fortunate that I've been able to survive long enough in the entertainment industry that there are a generation of Asian-American performers who look up to me. That's probably my greatest achievement. Oh. I love yeah, it it's amazing um, still though she did continue to struggle with addiction issues as recently as 2016 when she had a disastrous live performance at the stress factory in New Jersey and some audience members it was so bad that some audience members actually staged a walkout and this wow. led to family and friends finally stepping in to stage an intervention because she had actually been struggling with not only alcohol addiction but opioid addiction and her
2: friends so tough
1: yeah her friends told her they were going to a birthday party and instead held an intervention for her and were able to get her into rehab where she stayed for a year and a half and that is a long ass time it's a very long time to be in rehab and um 12 people who she was in treatment with subsequently died afterwards yeah so
2: Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunately a lot of the reality. She is so lucky that she was able to be in rehab for a year and a half. I was incredibly lucky that I was able to stay in treatment as long as I wanted because I was protected by the insurance companies. But unfortunately, that's what happens. So many people don't have the support to really truly get the help that they need and they're running through these systems constantly throughout their lives of, you know, going back to their addiction, going back to treatment, going back to their addiction, going back to treatment. And unfortunately, because those people aren't able to get the help, they end up dying. So it's amazing that Margaret is able to get the kind of help that she truly, truly needed so that she could get better and take that year and a half to truly improve herself.
1: Yeah, I mean, and she speaks also about how grateful she is to be alive because she got out of opioids before... She got to fentanyl because, you know, she's yep. like a lot of the people who I was in treatment with. This is what they got into. And this is actually mm. what ended up ending their lives. And she's like, I never got to that point, And I'm really grateful about that.
2: For real. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Stay away from fentanyl. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. God.
1: She's also been incredibly open and vocal about how her history of childhood sexual abuse abuse and bullying led to her addiction issues. She said, quote, the thing about opiates is that it's not really a high, it's a removal of you caring, but you still feel the pain, Mm. you still feel the anguish. Only the choice of whether or not to care about it is removed chemically. And she realized that her pain was largely down to external factors, quote, like how society looks at women or at Asian-Americans or how these problems are internalized and erupt in my yep. self-harm. And I think that uh-huh. that's, it's, it's so, Ah uh, gosh, I just love. It's fucking smart. It's so smart. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, I, I love
2: that. I love that she's saying the words that I feel very often. You know what I mean? Especially like harming yourself is something that's very hard to get other people to understand without it seeming very dumb or selfish or anything like that and and the way she's putting it makes it so clear that it really is this internal wound that isn't being healed and it's being shown externally until that internal wound is finally dealt with you're going to continue to see these external right
1: and it's uh, not exhibits of right. it you know and it's not one thing right like she's like yes no. I had childhood sexual abuse trauma I have trauma from bullying you know I have trauma that I'm dealing with as an Asian American woman in terms exactly. of like racism I have trauma and it's that I'm understanding
2: with. why mm-hmm. people go to these extents that they do to cope right. and I think that it's so easy for for addicts or for people who self-harm to be dismissed when we're not looking at the actual root of the problem. right?
1: Yeah. And her trauma is intersectional, right? And it should, and it has to be addressed in that way. Um, She's also been very vocal about how the model minority myth has harmed not only her, but the entire AAPI community as a whole.
2: That was, that was what I was trying to think of. That was the episode that I was trying to think of when I was describing things earlier. Yes, the we did do model an episode that. Myth. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yes, okay. Um,
1: and she speaks passionately about so-called aspirational whiteness, meaning the desire, mm-hmm. and we talk about this in that episode, the desire of many immigrants to escape racism by assimilating into white communities and presenting themselves as model minorities who produce the next generation of doctors, accountants, and lawyers. Right. And she's, she saw that happening. And just because of her personality, she rebelled against that. She resented that stereotype. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, when we saw that anti-Asian hate Um, in the United States had increased by something like 149%. Margaret became a leading voice in the Stop Asian Hate movement, giving interviews and using her podcast to focus on anti-Asian hate crimes. She even dedicated an entire season to her show, The Margaret Cho um, Model Minority, to examining Incidents such as the 1871 Chinatown massacre in L.A., Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that we had discussed as well. Um, And she also was very vocal about how this problem went so far beyond the COVID-19 pandemic or Donald Trump, that this was an existing underlying low simmering thing that had been happening for a long time. You know, and we shouldn't. And this just brought it to the surface, right? Yeah, right. And she was like, "As much as I would love to blame everything on Donald Trump, that's not the root cause of this issue, and we need to address that." Right. You know, Margaret uh, is far from done with her career, but unlike many others in her age bracket and chosen profession, meeting meeting comedians. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of comedians who are very resistant to change and criticism. She continues to be open to change and grow and evolve. And when she was asked about whether so-called cancel culture is harming comedy, she said, and again, I'm going to use her words, so please know (laughs) I'm using her words. But she said, for me, where cancel culture does great work is where you realize someone's true intentions and you're like, ugh. Piers Morgan is a great example of like, oh God, that's what you think? You know, why have we been watching him? So for <laughs> for years, she's identified as queer, um, self-identified that way. And she has referred to herself, again, her... Well, I'm not even going to say it. Her... her blah, blah, She has referred to herself as a blank hag. Rhymes with hag. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Um, in her shows. <laughs> but she calls herself that, right? In her shows. Yeah. And she... It's a slur. And she shouts right. this slur proudly because she is kind of this, like, gay... Icon, LGBTQ Icon. Um, And I think
2: that for a lot of people in the gay community, using that word
1: can be a way
2: of kind of like getting the power back a little bit. It's just not acceptable for other people. It's not. I don't like saying
1: it, you know. For her, you know, she says, she said, quote, there's so much history of pain that's attached to those words that I don't want to propagate, and so she yeah, said, "You know, exactly, yes, this exactly. is something I've proudly said in the past, um, but at this point, you know, I'm learning so much more, and I don't want to." Now say it we anymore. know why,
2: per- right? Right. Now we know by keeping that word in the public conscience why it public conscience is why. It's
1: continuing to be so damaging. We can just get rid of it. Yeah. You know? Absolutely.
2: So <laughs> it can retire. I mean, to
1: teach their own people within that community can draw their own lines. Yeah, as make far your own choices. I'm concerned, right. Because reclaiming language is also very powerful. But the, the right. point of that to me was more that she is thinking about these things. She's not so stubborn yes. about, like, well, it's just a word or whatever. Because I think so many times comedians, especially, get very defensive instead of stopping uh, Dave Chappelle yes exactly instead <laughs> of stopping to reflect why um, a community might have an issue with that or is it hurtful? yeah you know and what impact it has and I yeah really respect that about Margaret Cho so
2: it's amazing accountability accountability is always something that inspires me when I see it in other people me too
1: because none of us are Flawless. Like we all make mistakes, no. and especially with a career as long as she's had in in comedy, especially, there's you're going to
2: see those mistakes. Absolutely, yeah. you're
1: going to be able to go back and pull you know segments from interviews or things she's written or said that have not aged well. Right, that's just going to happen, and it will happen to all of us. Um, I'm sure that people will be able to pull clips from this very podcast in 30 years of course. and say that that didn't age well. You know, um, but. Your ability to say, I hear you. I'm accountable for that. I will not do it moving forward. Um, And just to be like to assess yourself and be self-analytical in that way is really admirable, I think. Um, So love her or hate her, despite all of her flaws and all the hardships that she's gone through She's changed the game, not only for women in comedy, but for Asian-Americans in the media as a whole. And she's never totally shied away from speaking her mind or, um, you know, she's been working for decades to carve out a space for all kinds of different marginalized voices to the point where she has kind of been dubbed. She's got this nickname of the patron saint of outsiders. And Uh, I feel that way about Margaret Cho, and I think that that's really inspiring. She's got this fearlessness and candidness that I think is really inspiring.
2: Truly. I'm Like you said in the beginning, I've seen a couple of her, I believe I've actually watched one of her one-woman shows, always been a fan of Margaret Cho herself, haven't seen a whole lot of her comedy stuff, but I have always been so inspired by her loudness, her willingness to tell the truth, her willingness to, you know, just be a little bit outrageous. It's something that I resonate
1: with. So thank you for teaching me a little bit more about her. Of course. Yeah, I loved learning about her as well, because like I said, you know, of course, I've been aware of her my whole life. Uh, Of
2: course. She's an icon. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, you know, her style of stand up isn't my favorite style of stand up. And so I don't think I really absorbed a ton of her in that way or in like the media yeah um so i really enjoyed learning a little bit more about her and and coming to love her a little bit as like a person you know Totally,
2: totally. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode. If there are any topics that you want us to cover in the future, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us and follow us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. If you want to wear some of our merch, you can go to the link in our Instagram bio. There will also be a link in the show notes wherever you are currently listening. We have a Facebook group and business page. You can chat with your fellow listeners on the group page and rate and review us on the business page last but certainly not least it's been a little bit since we've had a new review so if you haven't reviewed us yet please hop on over to that apple podcast app leave us a five-star review and a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show it truly does help us so so very much and it just makes our day all right that's all we have for you today with all that being said we encourage you to to rage
1: on on.
0: bye-bye